Father, we oftentimes walk in a direction that you would not have us walk. But you give to us your grace, your unmerited favor in spite of that. Just as your word says, if we ask for wisdom, you give it to us without finding fault. You know that we are frail and that we are weak. And you don't judge us according to our sins, for you are a God of mercy. But God, we would ask that you would strengthen our feeble knees and arms to do your will. And as we get to difficult subjects in the scripture, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what your word has to say. And that we would not reject it, that our thinking would conform to your word. And that we would not strive to make your word conform to our thinking. So, Father, we ask that you would do this this morning. Guide us in your ways, and may we openly accept them by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. When we left off last time, the disciples had the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And the Lord said that we must become like little children to enter into heaven. And becoming like a little child, we must trust completely and put our hope in Jesus Christ for him to bring our walks and our lives to fruition in heaven and know that we are protected from eternal harm just like a little child is protected by its parent or the parents you've seen mothers and fathers brooding over their little children maybe you've seen some of the videos where the child is going to fall off of something and the father grabs him at the last minute and saves him and brings him around or the little girl the same type of thing that's how God protects us he comes in just like a father or just like a mother protects us from harm scripture also also told us that those who entice a child or a believer to sin will be judged ever most severely and so we are never to entice another believer to sin just as we would never entice a little child to sin then we got to Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 And I'm just going to pick it up from there, give us context. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times, Jesus answered. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now, to unpack this, it's kind of like, even though yeast is evil, you put yeast in bread, and the bread, the dough, it just raises. There's so much, if you just start taking one or two verses here, you open it up, it's just like putting yeast and setting it on the nice room temperature oven up on top and putting a little towel over it and letting that bread raise. There's so much meat that is in here. Just one thing off the top here. In verse 20, it says, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them, or there I am in the midst. Many people will take this verse and say, see, this is why we need to pray together. Two or three of us are more powerful when we pray together. And of course, that's being taken out of context. This is not a treatise on prayer. 
but you hear it mentioned all the time. Pastors that I know, they use this verse in that particular way. Where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst, and it's wonderful that you're here listening to us. And by extension, if you ask the question, well, if it's just me alone, are you there in the midst? Of course he is. He's right there. And so to take that one out of context, and I remember talking with somebody in the kitchen over here, and they said, no, that's exactly what it means. When you have more people praying, it's more powerful, and, it, and you can usher in what God wants to do. And do you realize that we cannot change God's timetable at all? That his timetable is fixed, just like the day that we were born. It was fixed, just like the day that we perished from this earth. It is fixed. Just like when the Antichrist shows up and the abomination of desolation takes place, that is a fixed date. Just like when he comes back after 1,290 days, that is a fixed date. He has everything, every day lined up and fixed. We cannot change God's program at all. And some people say, well, no, we can't change it, but we can help usher it in by praying. Well, that brings up the question, if you don't pray, does that mean it doesn't usher in? No, it's still going to take place. And so that particular verse where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. The scripture says that a a fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, King James. That means if somebody is walking with the Lord and they pray, and they're the only ones praying, it's just as effective as if there is a corporate prayer meeting going on. And the Lord encourages us to pray. What this is dealing with here is a judicial decision inside the church. And it just preceding that, it says you take two or three witnesses with you to establish a matter. And of course, that was Old Testament and New Testament, especially in capital cases. You had to have two or three reliable witnesses in order to condemn a man to death, whether he is going to be stoned or whether they're going to be pushed out of the camp. You had to have these witnesses And so when these witnesses would show up, if they get together after the decision or after the matter is heard and they make a decision, if they say, yep, this is the decision, we're going to ask this man to leave the fellowship. God says, if two or three of you have been gathered together to make that decision, there I am in the midst. And it is established not only on earth, but it is established in heaven as well. And so that's what's being referred to here when two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst. Now, going back a little bit, you look at this and you say, what are we supposed to do here when it says we are to treat fellow believers as a pagan or a tax collector? Remember I brought this up last time. If somebody is brought forth and they're talked to about their sin. And by the way, there is an order in which this must be done. Where if a person has sinned against you, to give an example of somebody sinning against you, if somebody ripped you off, if somebody took some money from you and you know it was them, you have them on video and you see them clearly come in, they have taken money or some valuable thing from you and they say i didn't do it It wasn't me and you say i have the video no someone else it wasn't me and you know it was them the hd you know 1080p you can see right to their face it is them and they go nope then after you've gone to them alone and by the way we don't like to do that we like well let me go get counsel first Let me go talk to somebody in the church or my friend. Let me talk to my good friend. You know what this person did? Because if you end up going to them, this person, this other person that you would like to talk to, you may taint in their eyes this individual who may repent and say, you know, I'm totally sorry. And you may skew the view that your friend may have of this individual. And we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to say, you know, well, see this guy, he did this to me. Now, if you need to get counsel on how, say, I know somebody that needs some counsel on how to approach an individual and talk to them. And if you approach it that way and you don't talk about the person themselves, you don't make them appear in the eyes of your friend as something less than you ought to, 
You're not speaking evil of them. Remember Ephesians 4.29? Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And so you're only supposed to speak in such language that the person is always encouraged, never brought to a point of discouragement about somebody else specifically and about just life in general. So if you have somebody in the church, are we really supposed to say, look, you have sinned, the person is supposed to go to them personally, and if they won't listen, and you really are taken aback by this sin that has been committed against you, you go and get two or three people, where? From the church. You don't go to a counseling service that's secular. You don't go to a police officer. Now, a police officer can be in the church and be a believer, but you don't want to go to him personally as somebody who is in law enforcement and show up with his badge and his gun on his side and say, now tell me about this sin, this thievery that's been going on. You don't want to do that. Grab two or three people from the church, go and talk to them. And then it will be established in the ears of at least three or four people will hear what's going on. They will come to a conclusion. When they come to a conclusion, it will either be for restoration of relationship or ruination of relationship. You are to sever the relationship. And you might say in this day and age, well, that's so mean that you just cut them off, that you wouldn't give them a second chance, that you would just overlook the offense. And there are scriptures that deal with that. But it's this idea that we are not to associate with somebody who will not admit their sin. That's what it really comes down to. Like in, when you analyze this a little more, forgiveness, like in church discipline, they are difficult subjects to tackle. There's no question about it. Because there are some churches that if you attend them, if you get out of line just a little bit, it's like off with their heads, you know, just doing that Christian because they do not fall in line. Oh, and how are we supposed to view this idea of sin and forgiveness? Are we to err on the side of grace? Are, are you or am I supposed to say, well, I'm just choosing to have grace for them and, and extend mercy because, you know, after all, we're supposed to just get along. Can't we all just get along and be nice? And are we free to ignore church discipline as a believer in christ are we free when somebody sins against us just to go oh it's all right you know it's just stuff of this world anyhow are we free to do that as disciples or did the lord deliver this passage to us in such a way that he wants us to carry out and for the purposes of maintaining a relationship i would submit to you that yes Are we free to ignore forgiveness properly executed? Just not deal with it. I don't want the hassle. Just forgive them. Is it beneficial to the church to ignore unrepentant sin between two individuals? If it's inside the church and you know there's two individuals that aren't getting along, can we just simply say, well, you know, it's just Cleophas and and Timotheus. You know, those two, they're just not getting along. And, you know, they're ours, but, you know, they don't get along. Are we supposed to just do that? Or are we supposed to go up and say, hey, you guys need to make this right? And could you get people to agree not to have fellowship with somebody who is in this state of unrepentant sin? Would somebody in the church today, even though the church maybe has acted and has asked somebody to leave the fellowship, would you show up to them as a person in that church and say, well, I know you you got kicked out, but I still love you. You want to go get some lunch? Is it all right to do that? Or would the Lord say, no, you ought not to do that? Because after all, what will the person do? Like if it was in the church today, in this church, if that took place, what would the person do? The person would just go to another church, right? And then comes the question, well, does a pastor or an elder call up the other church they went to and tell them that this is unresolved? And give an example of this. Um, We once had a worship leader here. I'm going to tell you what happened with it, but I'm not going to tell you who or what church or that type of thing. We had a, a worship leader show up here, and he was certainly gifted. 
and we actually installed him as a worship leader, and he, he did great for like one or two weeks. And we found out that they were on a worship team at another church, and he had a, an affair with another person on the worship team. They both divorced their spouses and married. When they showed up here, they said, you know, we blew it. We did something wrong. We weren't supposed to do it. And we're paying the price for that, but we're going to stick together. And I thought, you know, that's good. I got a call from a pastor from where this couple came. And the pastor said, dude, you got to kick him out of the church. Well, by that time, they had already left. There were some issues going on. But that happens between churches and pastors, if there's somebody like that. Now, I didn't agree that the person should be kicked out of the church. I, and I've heard pastors say, well, what they need to do is divorce each other and go back and marry their first spouses. And I'm going, no, don't, don't just make it worse and worse and worse. And so there are things like that that go on. And, and we make this attempt to curb sin and keep all the sheep in line and get the sheepdogs, the ushers over there, just keeping them in line all the time. And, you know, that's not how we're supposed to operate. We're supposed to call sin, sin. There are directions to be followed in dealing with the sin. And we're to walk in such a way to consider ourselves that we also don't fall into the same sin that they had fallen into and that we deal graciously, but we deal scripturally. That we don't get away from what the scripture has to say. So could you get somebody to agree not to meet with that person who has been, quote-unquote, disfellowshipped? You know, one thing about the church, being a gardener, whenever I trim roses, I always bleed. Always. I try. I, I put on leather gloves. You know, I'm very careful I have sweatshirts on, you know, I'm, I'm reaching in there and I take care of over a hundred roses. It's probably up 200 roses. And every time I get in there, I'm so careful and I still bleed. That is the way it is with the church. In the church, you are all beautiful flowers, roses. But man, you guys are prickly. All of us are. I don't exclude myself from that. We are prickly. And when you have to deal firmly with somebody, grab a rose stem firmly and see what happens. It's always going to make you bleed in a metaphorical sense. Hopefully not literally, but in a metaphorical sense, that's going to happen. And so those people in a position of authority that would carry out something like this they're always going to be sneered at, made fun of, told others that they don't know what they're doing and they've made a mistake and how dare they. And so that's just going to happen when you carry out God's word the way it's supposed to be. And that would come from those not only inside the church, but those outside the church. Now, to give this an outline, somebody is seeking out forgiveness they said, if somebody has sinned against you, go to him privately. And this is done for the importance of going through the process. We are to do it alone, then with two or three witnesses, and then if that doesn't work, go before the church. So in essence, everybody finds out, whether it's a big church or small church, if these steps are followed and followed properly. And then it's meant to establish a verdict. Having all these meetings, at least three meetings, it's meant to establish a verdict. As I said before, it's either for the restoration of a relationship, and that would be a result of humbleness of the heart. The person realizes the sin that they have committed. They say, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And the relationship is reestablished. Or the opposite takes place, ruination of a relationship, and that is always due to the hardness of heart once a matter has been established. Now, it's all this idea that we deal with today of forgiveness. Now, I tackled forgiveness in chapter 5. I went through it. I'm briefly going to cover it again because whenever you hit forgiveness, 
There are always questions that come up afterwards. Like, how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to forgive this person after what they have done? You know, and of course, Jesus Christ is our example. How is Jesus supposed to forgive us when we were the ones that crucified him? How is the Father supposed to forgive us? But that's God's grace, and that's what we're supposed to walk under. And that's the example that he's given to us. And is that difficult to do? Oh, yeah. Have you had a chance to forgive somebody when you didn't want to? When your heart was saying, I will not forgive you. And we know that scripture says that if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will the Father forgive you your sins. So we are commanded to forgive. Now, there are a couple of categories that we deal with here. In scripture, it talks about definitely a sin, a trespass, an error, willful, that has taken place, maybe not willful, but certainly a sin against somebody else. It's just like when we sin, you have committed that sin against somebody else or a sin against somebody else, and it causes them no end of anxiety and nothing is resolved and the relationship is off kilter. It may be completely severed and something is supposed to be done about that. The Lord wants the goal of forgiveness to take place, which is the restoration of of relationship and it's an open relationship without hindrances and that's the perfect forgiveness that is given to us and in Matthew chapter 5 verse 23 it reads there therefore if you are offering a gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar go first and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift now it doesn't say that you have sinned against somebody It just says, you know that your brother or sister has something against you. You are aware of this. Somebody has told you about this. Or maybe the individual told you, and you want to come in, and you want to sing, great is your faithfulness. And you want to sing, Lord, I lift your name on high. And you want to just praise God, raise your hands, and in the back of your mind, you're going, this guy has something against me. See, Scripture deals with the offender and the offendee. The offender is in Matthew chapter 5. I have done something. You would say, I have done something to somebody else. I didn't think it was a sin, but boy, they are really miffed about this. The Lord says, go take care of it. Go take care of this issue with them. Matthew chapter 18 is, I am the offendee. Somebody has sinned against me, and I've been given Scripture on what to do. In both cases, the offender and the offendee is supposed to make the effort. In both cases. And so it's not to be put to rest. It is simply supposed to be established. There is a sin. Repentance needs to take place. Forgiveness needs to be sought. And forgiveness needs to be granted. That's the formula that is there. But before we get to the idea of the sin, there is the quarrel or a grievance. Now, what is a quarrel or a grievance? And I wrote down several examples, but first I want to give you scripture that deals with this. Ephesians 4.31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, or in Christ, God forgave you. And so there is a, a directive here given in the imperative mode that we are supposed to forgive just as Christ forgave us. But what is it we're supposed to forgive? Because somebody has become bitter, there is something that has taken place. Some incident that happened which caused an individual to feel bitterness against somebody else. And the thing may not have been a sin that caused the bitterness. It may have just been something in a relationship They cause the person's attitude to turn sour. Also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, it says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sinichi to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so you have these two women in the church. Imagine that, two women in the church having a disagreement. And they are at odds with each other. And they probably walk into the foyer of the church and, oh, you. 
and they walk the other way and they sit on the other side. They go out to the fellowship. Of course, they probably had pita bread and a little olive oil after the service and they were dipping that in and they wouldn't even look at each other or sit down at the same table or sit on the same chair or couch and recline. They just wouldn't do it. They avoided each other like the plague. And here Paul is writing, help them to get along. Loyal yoke fellow, please assist these two women. And he doesn't say a sin has taken place. There's just a disagreement between them. And one or both of them is experiencing at least some bitterness, maybe a little rage and anger in their heart is kind of stewing in there. If you add that up, you know, and brawling and slander, let's put it in the pot and heat it up really hot. And so they, you know, every time they just step out or wake up, they're thinking about this relationship. How has it gone sour? Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So we're asked to forgive not a sin, but a grievance. Now, okay, what are some examples of some grievances or quarrels that come up that are not sins? Example one or n- number one. Imagine you were an employee of Disney. I don't know if you heard what happened a couple of years ago, but with the, uh, I think it's called a B-1 visa, people from other countries were brought in for Disney Corp. And the people who were working at Disney, and I, I forget what branch of Disney, they were required to train these individuals. These individuals then replaced the ones who trained them. Now, how would you feel if you were at some place and the employer comes up and says, I want you to train this guy to do what you do. And you go, no problem. And you train them and they become really good. And then the employer comes to you and says, they're working for like five bucks cheaper than you. Sorry. See ya. Now, how would you feel on the inside? Did the business owner sin against them? Well, you might consider it unethical, but it's certainly not a sin. I mean... The guy, say it's a Christian, and he's going, you know, i got to run this business good. I'm accountable for how I run this business, and i got to cut costs, and, you know, you become a little too expensive, and i just got to be a good steward over what God has given me. So you really couldn't fault the Christian business owner over that. And maybe he came to you and wanted you to take a pay cut, and you're going, no, ain't happening. And, and you decide to go somewhere, and, you know, you're, you're done with them and you walk away just as bitter as can be but it was not a sin on the part of the employer so that's one example let me give you another one what if you are a stone or store owner in a strip mall and the owner rents a space just a couple of spaces down from you and they sell the exact same things that you sell as a business owner what would you say wonderful No, you say, what are you doing, man? Are you trying to hurt my business if half of it goes to them? And and I'm always going to be looking for being undercut. And I got to change my prices. And I operate on such a slim budget. And it's triple net. And I got to pay for everything. You would probably just be apoplectic. You would say, this is not fair. But if you look at the owner, and he needs to fill the space. And if the owner is a Christian... And that's the only one that can go in there. Is it a sin? Well, it may be a little unethical, but it's not a sin to do that. And you see how a disagreement could come up? So you're the store owner, you're a Christian, and the guy who owns the space is a Christian. What do you do then? Take him to court? <laughs> Sorry, First Corinthians chapter 6 says, uh-uh, don't do it. And, and see, that's one example of something that's not a sin, but can bring an offense, can bring bitterness, can bring hatred and discord and jealousy. Well, what about this one? What if you are a church and another church opens up right next door of the same type of church? Say you had an Episcopalian church on this end of the block and an Episcopalian church opens up on this end of the block. How do you think the leadership and the pastor would feel about that? They would not feel anything at all because they're Christians. 
that's a lie. You know, there's, there's no way. You're, gonna be, you're invading my territory. Even Calvary chapels, they have this thing. It's kind of unspoken, but it is spoken. Five miles. Five miles between Calvaries. That's the way it's supposed to be so we don't interfere with one another. You know, I used to think that. I really don't care. I hope a church opens up right next door and across the street at the old, the women's center or women's club or the old Presbyterian church there. There's another one down here on the other street and I hope one opens up on uh, Main and Woodside. I want them everywhere. Why? Because people get to choose where they want to go. And who determines where they go? The Lord. But who has the biggest banner? And who advertises the most? And who has the best website? And none of that determines where somebody goes. It's the Lord that determines that. And so I don't care if somebody wants to open up a church right across the street. Go ahead. It's wonderful. It's great. I encourage it. But other people would say, no, I'm, oh, I'm just bitter over that. And there have been occasions where I have felt that way too. But, you know, it's like, it's in the Lord's hands. I'm not going to worry about it. But that is definitely not a sin, but it may be an offense. Or how about this one? What if you are in a great friendship and you introduce somebody to your friend? And this would apply more to women. Somebody introduces, or you introduce someone to your good friend, and they become best friends. Now, would a, now some guys, they go, I'll just get another fishing partner. I don't care, man. Do what you want. You know, but the women, a lot of times, they are invested in relationships. And if that takes place, some, there's just, and I could see this happening to uh, Yoria and Sintichi, that maybe... They met somebody or they were introduced to somebody and they became the best of friends and the third wheel was kind of put out to the side. I invested in you and I had such a great, we had such a great relationship and you would have ruined it. And you could be Taylor Swift and write a song about it, you know, something like that. Where you just get all upset and it's really not a sin. They just clicked together a little better. Or what if it's a relationship a boyfriend and girlfriend, a man and a woman. And the man meets the woman's, his girlfriend's friend. And they click together better than the two of you. Would there be an offense there? Oh yeah, there would be an offense. Matter of fact, I know someone who did this. They went on a double date. You had a couple here and you had a couple here. And they went... Hang, I'm not going to get too many details. So they went hanging out a couple of times together. And the woman over here and the guy over here decided they liked each other better than the ones they were with. So they went together to the other two and said, ah, see ya. I'm going to tell you this. The person's in the church. Now, is that okay? Or is that not okay? Well, it's hurtful. It's extremely stressful. Is it a sin? No. You know, sometimes God uses relationships to bring people together, and we become incensed. We become hurt. We become enraged. And all because of relationships. That's what we do. And God says, look, just forgive them. If you had those two couples, if the other two, and I don't think all of them were Christians, but if the other two, you know, got together and they were holding this bitterness, they should just realize that, yeah, God used you to bring those two together to have the relationship. And it's, may your will be done and not my will. And what happens if these two ended up marrying separately and not getting together? They could have had a life of misery. But we don't see the future. And we don't know how God's hand works. And so these are the things that are quarrels and grievances. But not sins. And those happen all the time. 
When was the last time somebody came up and deliberately sinned against you and said, take that as a Christian? Hopefully, none of you. But when was the last time somebody committed an offense against you or there's a quarrel between you because of something relationship-wise? And God says, just forgive them. Don't hold it against them. God is in control of these things. So that's the first idea of something that is not a sin that causes a separation, a violation of the relationship, or at least a perceived one, and it separates individuals. And God says, don't let that happen. Now, the Lord is in charge, and it actually says in Psalm 75 or 7, but it is God who judges. He will bring one down and exalt another. So if it's a business, God raises up one business to bless the person, and he takes down another business. It says this also about kings. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. And so one leader comes forward, and God raises him up, and the other one he puts down. And it's God's prerogative. And we can't sit there and say, well, I object. No, it's God's prerogative. He's the one that's in charge. And so we're not supposed to hold a grudge against somebody and a grievance being defined as a complaint or a protestation based on a circumstance and it's just a circumstance that takes place now going on with this when sins arise against or between two people we know that there is an offender and an offendee of course those can cross over Because once somebody is offended, then they want to lash out, and then that person sins in their lashing out back at the other person. And so the outcome or the goal of these directions which are given to us is to remove the effect of the offense or sin whenever possible. Whatever effect came as a result of the sin, we're supposed to cover that over, bury it, consider it dead. Also, to remove both guilt and anger. This happens when this process takes place. The guilt for having committed a sin, and if you belong to the Lord, you're going to have guilt if you sinned against somebody. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of sin, and we have the guilt. And also, anger builds up as a result of that, and it's to get rid of the anger. Also, to restore a relationship and or open an unhindered line of communication. And that's the key. Unhindered. And... When I brought this up in Matthew chapter 5, there are three ways to look at this idea of forgiving sin, at least the way the world does it. There is exoneration. There is forbearance. And this, these words are somebody else's, but it gets the idea across. The other one is release. So the first one is exoneration where the person comes forward and says, you have sinned against me. I'm telling you about this sin. And at one of the three stages, the person says, you're right. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I never intended for this to happen. And the person probably says something along this line. You really hurt me. And it really affected our relationship. But I do forgive you. And it may take me a little time but you work, both of you work on it where there's no offense anymore. You don't even give it consideration. That's ideal. Now, I've done that uh, with some that have offended me in the past. Maybe you have as well, where there is no thought, no inhibition, so to speak, no trepidation, no, I'm not really going to get too close to you type of thing. A lot of times after sins like this take place, the relationship kind of just moves on anyhow, but you have already gone in and put the healing salve on there, and that's what God wants. He doesn't want it to go to the point where you end up kicking somebody out of fellowship. The second one is forbearance, where you get together, And you say, you need to ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And the person says, fine, I forgive you. And they go away. And, you know, it's just like, okay, you went through the steps, but there is no forgiveness there whatsoever. Or it's just a surface type forgiveness. Yeah, we met. We got together. Yeah, we solved it. Yeah, let's just move on. 
and I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. I, I'm, you know, I'm just protecting myself. That's exoneration. You've been absolved of your sins, but there is no relationship that takes place. That's what we do most of the time when confronted with this. I actually experienced this once with a, another pastor about 25 or 6 years ago where the person, he just, he did me wrong. And I was brewing. And I met with a person uh, personally, and it was not resolved. And then they, some other pastor friends of ours got us together. And when we were talking, they said, you guys just need to forgive each other. And it was like, okay, I forgive you. Okay. And that was it. And we just kind of left. And it was not resolved at all until that person came back to me and said, you know, I'm so sorry. I realize what I've done. And like when that happened, it was just like these chains fell off. You know, we went through all of this for what? And, And I've had that with another person as well. And the person found me. And came up to me and said the same thing. Said, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't realize what was going on. And I'm telling you, the, re- the release that takes place, the, the weight that is on your body physically, and you start to ache over this thing. And God just says, see how easy it is just to release. But you have to be willing and not hold the grudge and not hold the bitterness. Then there's the release The release can take place for a couple of different reasons. One is, and what the release is, is where you say, just forgive them. And this is the world's way of doing it. This is not the biblical way. When it comes to a sin, not when it comes to the quarrel or the grievance that you might have, but when it comes to simply a definable sin as is in Scripture, somebody just says, I forgive them. It's kind of like free grace. If you know what the doctrine of free grace is, you can accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and live like hell the rest of your life, and God is still going to take you to heaven. My question is, did you ever really get saved? Is there any fruit in your life? That type of thing. But this particular release is where it's unilateral. It's one way, and you say, I forgive you. The person may say, well, I don't. Well, there is not biblical forgiveness in that case. And biblical forgiveness, I believe, is it has to be two ways. Now, I I do want to say at this point, there are others that don't hold this view. And that's okay. I'm not going to condemn them for not holding this view. It's, it's, It's totally okay. If you do any research on this, good teachers are on both sides. And, okay, Just the way I read scripture, I'm giving it to you the way I read scripture. And I have held this at least for 25 years. And every time I go back to it, I look at it again and I go, yep, that's the way it is. So this release is usually contingent on one person saying, I forgive you. It may not be possible because the person has died Or it may not be possible because the person suffered a stroke and they're alive, but they really can't communicate. It it, it can be moved away and you've lost contact. All of those things can be factors in the release. What you actually choose to do is give them mercy. That's what it actually is. You're choosing not to hold something against someone else. It's an act of mercy. Not judging someone according to their sin, but giving them unmerited favor. You do not provide for them justice. Well, you did this. <laughs> Look what I'm going to do. That is repaying evil for evil. And so sometimes it's necessary that we say, you know, I'm just going to extend to them mercy. I'm not going to hold anything against them for my own health for my own well-being is what I'm going to do. In Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. And this word for offense 
is the same word we would use for sin. To overlook a sin. And so we can choose to overlook the sin. It doesn't mean that forgiveness has taken place. We're just simply deciding to treat the person in such a way that you that offense have never taken place, even though it has, and there is not a restoration of relationship taking place. You just choose to walk in a, a sane way so it doesn't affect your life. And I'm all behind that, especially if the person has died or if the person is, has a health issue and you can't resolve the issue. So we have the quarrel, we have the sin, With that sin, you have the exoneration that takes place. You have this idea of release, of just forgiving them. And when when we look at the sin like that, then it gives us God's perspective. So forgiveness may be unattainable, especially from those who will not give it. And we must forgive as Jesus forgave. And God's forgiveness is conditional. Is anybody going to get to heaven that doesn't turn to God and say, God, will you forgive me? Some people say, well, what about children that die? Not free pass. What about somebody who's handicapped? Not free pass. I believe God is just in those cases. I believe God's mercy is abundant because they don't know how to communicate. Their synapses are not right. And they belong to Jesus Christ. And God is not unjust. But a person that is fully capable in their mental capacities, is anyone going to get into heaven that understood and heard the gospel? And even those that didn't hear the gospel, is anyone getting into heaven that doesn't turn to God and ask for forgiveness? Romans tells us that people are without excuse because of the things that have been made. We can see God in creation. That's general revelation. And if we seek after wanting to know who that is, God reveals Jesus Christ to us. And that's how we get saved. And so no one is getting into heaven and having their sins forgiven if they don't ask for the forgiveness. Scripture even tells us this. In Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. See, it's predicated on repentance. If he sins against you seven times a day, seven times a day comes back and says, repent, forgive him now if he sins against you seven times a day something's wrong but he was using hyperbole here to express the point he could have said if he sins against you 400 times a day and he asks for forgiveness forgive him and so the onus on those who have been sinned against is to forgive if it's requested we're supposed to do that there's another scripture that does this how about first john 1 9 If we don't confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Isn't that what it says? Uh, No, it doesn't say that. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not if we don't confess them. He doesn't just give, he's not going to save everybody. We know that the road to heaven is narrow. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 25 Uh, Remember, it's about this servant who owned or owed like a million dollars, and there's somebody who owed 50 bucks. Remember that exchange, and we'll end up getting into that whole thing probably next week. But the reason that one that owed millions to his master, the reason he was forgiven is because he begged the master to forgive him. When it came to collecting 50 bucks that somebody owed him, he was unwilling to forgive And see, again, he uses hyperbole to express this. That if you simply ask, we're supposed to forgive. And of course, when he didn't forgive the $50 debt, it's not $50, but it was a a small amount. When he didn't forgive that, the master who originally forgave like the millions of dollars threw him in prison and said, you're not getting out until you pay the last bit. In our case, we can never pay the last bit. It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we get into heaven. Now, going on with this, forgiveness of sins is never unilateral, extended one way. That is simply mercy taking place. And forgiveness requires sincerity. You have to be willing to say, I am willing to forgive. With all sincerity of heart, 
that you're not going to hold anything against the individual. And it is a work. You actually have to deny the flesh because the flesh wants to retaliate. So this morning, if you're holding something against somebody, the Lord wants you to deal with it. If you're able to. If you're not, I would say extend to the mercy. And if there's a quarrel or a grievance going on with somebody, you know, the God, God forgives us. We can forgive them. But if you say, well, you don't understand what they did to me. No, I understand what we did to Jesus. I do understand that. And even the worst sin that you can think of does not compare to anything like what we did to Jesus. And so when it comes to forgiveness, you guys have the scriptures. And if you, know, if you don't agree, it's okay. It's all right. I would encourage you to search out the scriptures yourselves. Now what we're going to do, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we remember his death, burial, and resurrection by the receiving of communion. We do this once a month on the first Sunday of every month. And, of course, the bread represents his body, which was given for us, his sacrifice of his body, and the blood, which actually provides for us the forgiveness of sin. It washes our sins and makes us white as snow. His blood was given just like the lamb who was sacrificed for the sins of the nation of Israel and Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and we get that forgiveness. If you've never asked for forgiveness from Jesus Christ, from God, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And, of course, it's a life of bliss, an eternity of bliss. After that, what is the alternative? Darkness. Pain, sorrow, regret, suffering, contempt. It's our choice. We can choose either. So as the worship team comes up, what we're going to do, we're going to lower the center lights in here, and we're going to sing a song. And when the song's being sung, if you need to confess to the Lord maybe a heart of unforgiveness or you need to ask the Lord for forgiveness, that's the time to do it. As we're singing, you say, Lord, forgive me. And help me to do right in your eyes when it comes to relationship. And so after we start singing the song, the men will come up, and women too. And we'll grab this and they will pass it out. And please hold on to it until Steve can come up and pray for the elements.